Good morning. My name is Carl. I'm one of the pastors here, and I guess based on Kathy's comments that I have to at least acknowledge that this is Labor Day weekend, although I question whether it really is happy. Um, you know, we, we obviously lose the summer temperatures, the kids and the teachers, they go back to school, we have shorter days and cooler nights. I'm just not sure it's worth giving up a Monday to, to lose all that, or getting a Monday to lose all that. But we do also understand that with fall comes some very wonderful things as well. The NFL season begins. Uh, our new ministry year begins next a week, and all the activities associated with that are going on. And to be honest, I mean, fall in New England is probably one of the highlights of our year. And so I would encourage all of you to consider this a good weekend, even if it means that you've got many years until you retire or many months until summer works its way back again. Can we turn it down just a bit? Uh, but if you're a guest here, I certainly want to welcome you, and I want to encourage you to come back next Sunday when our senior pastor will be back in the pulpit. But whether you're a guest here for the first time or whether you've been traveling for much of the summer and perhaps missed many of the Esther series, I think this will be the 11th sermon of the series. We encourage you, you can go online, you can binge listen, if that's such a thing, at your convenience, and it's a way to kind of catch up with perhaps what you missed. But I think it would be safe to say that if each one of us had the opportunity for editorial oversight over what was in the Bible, we would probably make some changes. And perhaps we would shorten some of the books. For examples, in Numbers, we would probably end it after chapter 19, before Moses lived a hard rock life. In Jonah, we would probably end it after chapter 3, before Jonah couldn't leave well enough alone. And in Second Samuel, we would probably end it in 10 before David hit the roof. And with our current series, I think it's safe to say that most of us would have felt more comfortable with the book ending chapter 8 before the line of Judah let out a holy roar. But we understand that the Bible is full of flaws and it's always on display. The Bible and God does not whitewash the imperfections of his people. In fact, we showcase them throughout God's word in order to understand that it is not our strength, it is not our wisdom, it is not our perfection that enables us to be who we are, but is our dependence upon Jesus Christ. For God's perfect plan is never dependent on the flawless actions of people. For God can use imperfect people even when they do imperfect things. As Travis reminded us in one of the early sermons in the series, oftentimes we might see ourselves as a 21st century Daniel. But the truth is, most of us resemble more like Mordecai and Esther in the way that we approach and behave in response to what God has called us to do. So as we turn our attention to the final 15 verses of Esther, we're going to look and see what the missing piece is. You'll find today's lesson on page 415 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to start with chapter 9, verse 20, and work our way through the end of chapter 10. And brothers and sisters, again, this is the very word of God. Chapter 9, verse 20. 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what, had, what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan uh, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent out to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ashishurus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Continuing in the chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and that he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. As we approach God's holy word this morning, would you please join me in a moment of prayer? Father God, we know that we certainly are flawed individuals. We know that it is not through uh, anything that we have done, achieved, or or earned uh, that we are able to be reconciled with you, but it is simply through what Jesus has done for us on the cross and that we understand that is true peace that comes only through a relationship with him. And so we pray as we approach the final chapters of this study, Lord, that you would again convict us of areas that we need to change and remind us of ways that we can again serve you and give you the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the first eight and a half chapters are full of ironic twists and turns. We've got dramatic reversals. We have everything that you can imagine being tossed out there. 
and it looks like the whole landscape is changing. But then suddenly when we enter into the second half of 9 and and certainly into 10, we start to see that things don't really look that dissimilar from where we were when we first started the study back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. For we see that King Xerxes, after playing taxes hold'em, has reinstated them and has also reinstated his own center of self, uh, selflessness. We also see that Esther is, surprisingly, planning another meal, which gives her the title Beauty and the Feast. And Mordecai is sending out yet another letter, which if you're counting, I believe this is the eighth time in the ten chapters, giving, again, the sentiment that Persia is a male-dominated culture. Now, one of the things that you please understand that both in the, in, the deli- in, in the mail system and with jokes, delivery is everything. So, yeah, we're just trying to have a civil service here, so please work with me. So, I hear that, boo. Thank you. Um, so, God's perfect plan is never dependent upon the actions of his people, only on the faithfulness of his son. So this morning I want to look at three things as we wrap up this study and as we look at these 15 verses. I believe that these are things that would be applicable to a 4th century century B.C. Israelite in Persia or perhaps even a 21st century Christian in the culture that we live in. The three things I want to look at are remembrance of the past, recognition of the present, realization of the future. First, we'll look at remembrance of the past. We see in those verses in chapter 9 the term remember or remembrance. And we understand that that very word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. Because we, we also see that as far as remembrance, that is an important tenet of Judaism. And so there was always this emphasis on trying to make sure that people did not forget what God had done for them. That there was this understanding that we are always to look back with gratitude and that we are always to remember and pass on to future generations what the Lord has done in our lives and in the lives of others. And this, again, is a spontaneous celebration. It's not something that was mandated from Uh, God's holy word at that time. This is something that the Jews, in response to what they have received, have begun to celebrate. And even it's it's my understanding that the, the, the Jews have been faithful to the celebration of this feast for over 2,500 years. And these are some of the guidelines that they deal with. And these are true. I'm not making these up. So it's it's encouraged that you drink as much as you can so that no one can tell the difference whether you're cursed by Haman or blessed by Mordecai. Whenever the reading of Esther is done, they're encouraged to boo and hiss when the name of Haman is read. Now, when looking at ways how we can apply this to our present-day situation, I don't think necessarily those two are helpful, but it really is a reminder of the importance for us to look at God's activity, God's sightings, in each of our lives, and to make sure as parents we are passing this down to our children. Because again, when we establish to them that what we share with them, what we spend talking about, is not all the difficulties we're facing, 
but indeed what God is doing for us, providing for us, then it begins to instill in them the importance of God in their lives and understanding that he is not just a distant being that has no concern for their lives. So when Gene and I were first uh, married, we didn't have the most reliable vehicles. And so in, in about an eight-month period of time, I had two alternators die on me when I was driving. I don't know whether any of you have experienced an alternator dying while you're driving, but it's probably one of the spookiest things that you can imagine. Because what happens is slowly every part of your system starts to shut down. And you lose things like heat and wipers and radio, and your lights start to dim. And then eventually, at some point, the battery runs out of juice because it's no longer being charged by the alternator. The car stalls, and you got to go through all that process. The first time it happened to me, it was in summer. It was on July. It was in 95 in Waltham. Not a big deal. Simply called Gene and said, come get me. I waited. We called AAA, and we're able to get it resolved. The second time, eight, about eight months later, it was not quite as easy to deal with. It was February. I was coming home late at night from Burlington. Uh, it was a snowstorm. The snow was really beginning to pile up on the roads. And I saw that trademark idiot light come up on the dashboard, and I knew I was in trouble. So it was a bad night. We had little kids. I didn't want Jean coming out and meeting me anywhere. So I basically told her, look, I don't know what's going to happen. All I'm going to do is drive this thing until it dies, and then I'll figure out what I do from there, whether I walk home or sleep in the car overnight or whatever. So as I went uh, through that process, I didn't have much to do, right? Because there's no radio, and you're kind of just trying to do whatever you can just to kind of think about things, and your mind tends to go to worst-case scenarios about what am I going to do? I'm going to end up having to walk or or be stranded somewhere. I don't want to be stranded. And so all I could think to do was to begin to sing hymns. And, and it wasn't like I was such a spiritually deep person at that time, but I felt like that was at least one way that I could see that there was hope in the situation. And so I began singing. And I didn't stop singing until I pulled into my driveway 45 miles later. And so I was so thrilled and relieved that I had not been stranded somewhere that I went in And I told Gene, get Carl, my son, who was three years old at the time. And I said, let's go in the living room. And we sat on the living room floor. And I described to him in great detail about the amazing miracle that had happened, how God had provided in a situation that I could not have imagined there would have been a good ending to. And I talked about how in the Bible you have Elijah with the widow and the oil that would not end. And it was the same type of experience. And to me, it was so important that it was like, I need to share this with my son because I need him to understand that when things get difficult, when life is not always easy, that we see God working behind the scenes, that we see God providing in ways that we certainly don't understand or expect. The other thing I would encourage you to do if you're not doing this regularly, whether you do it on a computer, whether you do it on a piece of paper that you tuck in your Bible, is to record times when God provides for you. And then what you need to do is find opportunities to celebrate those. We're so often, we're, we're kind of hesitant to kind of remember what God has done because it's much easier to focus on the difficult problems we're facing. 
But I can tell you, if you revert back and, and look back, reflect back on what God has done for you in the midst of your present trial, you'll begin to have the confidence that, yes, he truly can provide for whatever I'm facing. And parents, again, take opportunities to celebrate that. If there's a major provision that God has done, he has freed you from cancer, he has given you a job in difficult circumstances, or whatever the provision is, put it on the calendar. And when the kids say, what does this date on the calendar mean? Then sit down and share it with them. Because we need to, again, focus on where God is working in our lives and where he is uh, giving us provision that we quickly move over when we're looking for the next thing in our lives. And obviously here we, we see throughout the book of Esther and we see throughout the Old Testament that another aspect of remembering is to remind people where they came from. So for Esther, she was the queen of Persia and Mordecai needed to tell her, hey, your people are obviously being impacted here. So just because you're now queen doesn't mean that you're free from this. You need to remember where you came from. You need to remember who you were. And the same applies to us. The longer we are as Christians, the more likely there were to reflect on what our lives were before Christ saved us. And we're hesitant to share that with others because we're afraid it would look poorly on us. But that's exactly what we need to do to remind people that it is not our strength, it is not our wisdom, it is not our ability that has put us where it is. It's simply that we acknowledged our sin and acknowledged the need for a Savior, which is what we will do later on in the service around this table, where we reflect and remember on what Jesus did for us. When we remember past deliverances, we're more likely and able to face our present difficulties, which brings us to our second point, recognition of the present. So we see King Xerxes again reverting to his old behavior, his own self-centeredness. It's, it's no Ebenezer Scrooge or Susie and Grinch reversal. Xerxes just continues to fall back to his old ways. And we feel like it's, it's kind of disappointing because we want to believe that God can transform any situation and that everything will be totally changed around. And we begin to feel like, okay, what's happening? This, this doesn't look like deliverance anymore. And we know that it certainly isn't. For even though Mordecai was able to save his people, everyone there eventually died. King Xerxes, who was the most powerful ruler at the time, eight years after this, was assassinated by his son-in-law. So there is this sense that nothing as far as power or deliverance in this world is going to be lasting. And so that is why we again focus not on who the, the princes and the rulers of this age are, but certainly understanding that the plans of the powerful are always surpassed by the power of God. Alexander Carson, who's a 19th century theologian, said this. In the book of Esther, we should learn that God is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he rules in the midst of his enemies, and he can make most tyrannical of princes the protector of his people when he wishes. I found that really helpful and challenging when you tend to think about and you kind of worry about all the world leaders and, and what cause and, and damage they could possibly do to this country or to, to our families. 
And we begin to understand that God, as we see in Psalm 2, is not concerned. The nations rage, but the Lord laughs. He understands. He's in control. So why should we, when we see a human ruler acting not the way that we would like, that we would start to get all upset and anxious about where this world is going. God knows and God has a plan and God even allows imperfect people doing imperfect things as part of his plan. It is just a reminder from uh, Esther and Mordecai that, that they too, while they played significant roles in the saving of the people, that they were limited in what they could do. For we know that Esther and, and Mordecai were human beings that could not do more than simply save these people for that particular time. But it was nothing that would ever last, for we know that it was only through the relationship with Jesus Christ, only through what Jesus did on the cross, that any of us could ever expect to see lasting peace. But when we talk about the recognition of the present, there's times where we're going to see things that don't make sense. We don't think that God is working because we don't see evidence. Or when we do see things that are happening, we think that God made a mistake. That obviously he didn't really understand the problem and what he's providing as far as a provision or solution is not the right path. But when that happens, I encourage you to go back to Habakkuk 1.5. For this is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk when he asked that same question. Lord, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. Are you sure? You know what the problem is here? The Lord says, For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. It's an understanding that God's ways are so far beyond us that we're never going to be able to figure his out. And so instead of us fretting about what does this connect with what I really need as far as provision or deliverance, we need to begin to watch how God is using each of these situations in an amazing way to bring about his plan. God can use anyone. And I think we understand that through the, the story of Xerxes. Xerxes was an unwilling participant in this. He was not having a change of heart and decided to change his ways just to honor God. He was basically a pawn in what God was doing. And it's just a reminder to us that each one of us can be used by God despite our imperfections. That it is through his plan that he takes our imperfect actions and applies them to bring about his perfect plan. God's perfect plan is never dependent on the flawless actions of people, only on the faithfulness of his son. When I was in college, uh, I was really struggling kind of with my identity in Christ. And then something significant happened that really bolstered my faith. And it wasn't anything that I, I, I experienced as far as God's provision. It wasn't a, a conviction of my own sin. It wasn't an altar call that brought me to my knees. But it was the release of an album called Slow Train Coming in 1979 by Bob Dylan. You see, up to that point, I was kind of like embarrassed for being a Christian. I didn't really fully understand that, you know, people who were cool and, and, and of, of um, famous uh, reputations could actually be seen as Christians. And so as soon as Bob Dylan released that, that, uh, that album and the next two, I mean, I was, 
I was flying high. I felt like I could boldly speak because if anybody challenged me, suddenly they'd say, well, it's good enough for Bob Dylan, the voice of a nation, the anti-war protester. I mean, he was, he was kind of the, the highest uh, considered both uh, uh, lyric writer, but also the voice of a generation. So I felt that there was nothing that, that was going to hold me back until Bob started to, to kind of drift away from his message. And I don't know where Bob is right now. If, if you believe Tom Petty, he says Bob's a, a bunch of nice people. Um, there, there's always this sense that we can't really identify where Bob is. And as, as Bob became backing away from his original statements... I found my faith waning as well. And it was because I was putting all my confidence and my faith in what was going on around me. And we tend to do that as well. When, when we see someone that's in power, someone that's in charge, that is speaking from the Bible and proclaiming that they're a follower of God, we start getting pumped up. But then as soon as the culture changes, we begin to start to back off from our positions. But what we're called to do is to be faithful in spite of our circumstances, not only when it's the popular thing, not only when we have somebody that we can point to that is famous or powerful, that shares our views. At my hand circle, which I've been going to for a a study of the Bible uh, for for about 10 years, I, I met a woman whose name was Shirley. And this woman, Shirley, became a very dear close to Jean and I, a close friend to Jean and I. And one of the things that, as I got to know her more, I found out she, that she had much pain in her life. She had lost two children at kind of a, uh, an early age. She had lost her husband, and she had dealt with her own health issues. But yet she just had this balanced approach that was kind of like, I don't understand everything that's going on but I trust that God is going to provide and going to use this in some way that I don't understand. And it's always interesting because whenever I would go to visit with her, she would always show me puzzles, the current puzzle that she was working on. Now, I understand that the numero uno member of the pastoral staff does not appreciate puzzles, but Shirley really felt that they were just a a wonderful hobby for her. And it's funny because as I began to look at both her life and look at her approach to grief and suffering, I started to see parallels between the way that she would work at a puzzle and the way that she would approach difficulties as she came along. She had the, the most wonderful, patient demeanor when she was working on a puzzle. She didn't try to force anything or, or try to fit everything into a certain amount of time. She just went with whatever pieces would work, and as the picture became more and more visible, she would work with what she had. And I really believe that that's a wonderful image for how we approach times of uncertainty. We want to see the total picture, right? We want to see what happens at the end. And we're not content for the picture to be revealed piece by piece. And after a while, when we get frustrated by the way that it's, it's beginning to form, we probably say, well, we must be missing a piece or that the creator had a flaw in his design. But the problem is that we need to change our perspective. The problem is we need to understand that we are given 
a piece or two of God's plan, of the final picture. And only God knows the final picture and how the piece that you're actually involved with fits in with the greater picture. And we can't rush beyond that. We just have to simply see how each piece that God is providing is a way that is bringing us to the final solution that he has in his perfect plan. God's perfect plan is never dependent on the flawless actions of people, only on the faithfulness of his son. Which brings us to the third point, realization of the future. As we mentioned, Mordecai is is, uh, given accolades. He appears in the books of the media and the Persia of all his accomplishments. And and if it was his, his epitaph, it would say that he sought the peace of the people. But true lasting peace will not come when it's given by the second in command. True peace and lasting peace only comes through Jesus Christ who is authority over all heaven and earth and is second to none. Esther risked her life for the people to be saved. Jesus was the one who gave his life in order to save all of us. Mordecai, again, the peace he offered his people, the welfare that he offered was simply limited. But Jesus is the one who gives us peace That surpasses all understanding. Mordecai was able to save the people, but they all eventually died. Jesus saves us from eternal death. He's the one who provides final deliverance for us. Xerxes' reign in the Persian Empire eventually came to an end. Christ's reign and his kingdom will never end. When I was looking at the first couple verses of chapter 10, and it was talking about Xerxes' uh, reign and how it went from coastland, and and early in chapter 1, when we look at all the provinces and the vastness of his kingdom, I began to think about another king that we see prophesied in Zechariah 9. And I'll read this. These are very familiar words to you, I'm sure. Zechariah 9, 9 to 10 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We need to again look beyond our visible circumstances to the unseen heaven reality of Jesus Christ who is on the throne, the true king who is the one who can bring lasting peace. For God's perfect plan is never dependent upon the flawless actions of his people, but on the faithfulness of his son. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. 
Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.